Well, good morning. Thank you, Bill, and uh, welcome to the Brookside campus. If I've not had the joy of visiting with you, I uh, hope I'll get to do that. Uh, you ready for winter to be over? <clears throat> Man, I am, and I grew up in Minnesota, so this is a brutal winter, but I hope you sense the warmth of Christ here, and uh, if you've been a part of church for a long time, we're delighted you're here. If you're checking out church or looking into faith, we want you to know that you're very welcome here, and uh, the Christ Community family loves God with their heart, uh, their hands. Uh, and their minds. And uh, so I give you a warm greeting across our campuses, and it's a delight to uh, be here with you today as we unpack this powerful text together. Well, this week uh, I caught an NBC weekly night uh, newscast that I've been hearing a lot about these days. Maybe you have. And uh, the news reporter pressed into this reality that with information technology at this high rate, there are detrimental impacts to our health and relationships. Because now we live in a nanosecond world, and we cannot escape being plugged in. The reporter pressed into a lot of different people and vocations, I thought it was fascinating, about how the boundaries between family and work are now vanishing. That more and more people, maybe you're one of them, spend a lot of time in the evenings and on weekends working on their laptops, iPads, smartphones. And this reporter pressed into what is happening to our world when we are constantly plugged in. Now, this is true in my own life, I must say. I wrestle with this. Maybe you do too. Uh, Friday is my day off from work. And uh, I find myself having a hard time stopping. I find myself on Fridays looking at my smartphone, checking emails, working on my laptop computer, It seems like work beckons me at every turn. I can't seem to escape it. Even on my day off, I find myself working. Now, this is ironic for me in many ways. Some of you know that uh, not too long ago, I wrote a book on work (laughs) and why work matters, for goodness sakes. And having written a book on work, I need to be reminded that not only work matters, your work and my work, but rest matters. Your rest and my rest It's all too easy for me to work too much, to keep a frenetic pace, to sort of pack into my schedule more than I can handle. Anybody here relate to that? (laughs) Whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you're a young entrepreneur that is putting in the long hours that are needed to launch a business, whether you're a professional with an overflowing practice, a business leader facing the massive challenges of a recession, coming out of the recession, global competition. All of us face the challenge of working perhaps too much. It's a Herculean struggle for all of us. I find it amazing that it's easy to be in touch with all our Facebook friends and so out of touch with our family. How about you? It's easy to have a full schedule and yet to have an empty life. It's very easy in our time Yes, for pastors, for all of us, to live fast and not to live deep. This is one of the greatest challenges in our world, regardless of faith or non-faith. Jeremy Rifkin, who is not a person that I know embraces faith, is a brilliant economist and best-selling author, 19 books, not too shabby. He has devoted his whole scholarly career, Jeremy has, to tracking how The growth of technology is impacting the human spirit and human flourishing. 
This is what he writes. We are a nation in love with speed. We drive fast, eat fast, make love fast. We are obsessed with breaking records and shortening time spans. We digest our life, condense our experiences, and compress our thoughts. We are a culture surrounded by memos and commercials. While other cultures might believe haste makes waste, we are convinced that speed reflects alertness, power, and success. Jeremy observes, Americans are always in a hurry. It seems to me the temper of our times is not only hurriedness, but restlessness. It is a restlessness, at least if you experience, as I do, of body and spirit, a restlessness that just taking one day off does not satisfy, or a week's vacation. Sometimes we struggle with looking for rest, don't we? We look for rest in many good diversions that are not bad in themselves, a wonderful latte at Starbucks, different kinds of recreation, hobbies, parties, and entertainments. Yet I want to suggest to you, if you are like me, there's a tiredness of spirit under your Sunday smile and my Sunday smile that reveals a haunting emptiness. One of the ironies of our times, your life and my life, is that a busy life often hides a barren soul. So how do you and I find rest in a restless world? This is the question that the brilliant writer of Hebrews addresses 2,000 years ago. Bill read us the text, and I'd like you, if you've not turned there, to turn to this text as we look at it this morning. Because this is the question that the Hebrew writer speaks across the sands of time into your life and mine today in a restless world. How do we find rest? Now, if you're visiting or you've been here for a while, you know that as a church family, we are unpacking this brilliant book called Hebrews. And the Hebrew writer is, not only has a pastor's heart, he has a brilliant scholarly mind, and he arranges his book with brilliant literary artistry. His message of warning, of loving warning to a group of first century followers of Jesus who are Jewish in their backdrop, who are beginning to drift, who are beginning to let go of their faith, he wants the warnings of concern and love to be embedded in their heart and mind and to sit right on their shoulder as they read through this whole book. And to understand this brilliant book, we need to understand how it's framed in two metaphors of warning. Pastor Bill unpacked for us the first warning in chapter 2. It's a metaphor, a nautical one. It's a metaphor of drifting, and with metaphor, right, there's comparison. And what is the comparison? The comparison in the Hebrew writer's mind that he wants placed in our mind as people of thoughtfulness is this. Just like a boat drifts, so do people. And the longer a boat drifts unanchored, the more perilous and the more lost it gets. People are like boats, and there's a danger of drifting for you and me. But it's not just the nautical metaphor he unpacks. He also, last week we unpacked in chapter 3, the second metaphor that frames this brilliant book, and that is the metaphor of hardening. It's not a nautical one, it is an agrarian one. And the comparison he wants to tuck into our hearts and minds and to ask ourselves the question about what our heart is all about 
is the picture of soil is like a soul. Jesus told a story, if you remember, of the parable of the soils. And I would suggest to you that the Hebrew writer is thinking about this parable. Just like a soil that is hard cannot sustain life-giving growth, a hard heart cannot sustain spiritual vitality in life. So he brings these two metaphors of warning to restless hearts, the metaphor of drifting and the metaphor of hardening. What he wants us to understand is the perilous consequences of drifting from our faith, of having gospel drift, of having a hardened heart that cannot hear the good news of the gospel, is that we will not enter rest. You and I will not find rest. So he begins to unpack this in chapter 4. Now, where we want to go this morning is to unpack three questions, or to raise three questions that I think are vital for all of us who feel deeply restless in a restless world. And that are these three questions frame our conversation this morning. And if you're taking notes or you're arranging in a sort of the scaffolding of your mind, this is where we're heading. The first question we want to raise briefly is, what is true rest anyway? What is true rest anyway? And secondly, we want to ask the question, then why don't we truly rest? And then we want to press in third is, how do we truly rest? So what is true rest? Why don't we truly rest? And how do we truly rest? So first, what is true rest? Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of rest. What comes into my mind, especially as a kid growing up, was like waterboarding torture. Because I remember having to go rest when I didn't want to rest. Kids, you know what that's like. You get older, you like to rest. You like taking naps. For me, when I was a kid, taking a nap was like serious waterboarding. I mean, there was so much to do. I didn't want to take a nap. My parents would say, go take a nap. I didn't want to take a nap. Rest was a bummer. And usually I had to go to bed early when all these fun things were happening downstairs in the adult world, and I wanted to join, but I had to pitter-patter upstairs and go to bed and rest. Rest was a bummer idea. Now, regardless of our age, I want to suggest to you that most of us in English think of rest as inactivity. Um, Sort of, we might like it better than when we were a kid, but sort of napping or chilling out with our friends at the beach. Perhaps your image of rest is like this. Uh, Our family uh, (laughs) was in California at a vacation recently, and uh, there's this massive migration of elephant seals. Have you ever seen this? It's amazing. Just to be, here's what it looks like. I mean, this is like rest, right? Like chill. It's like the ultimate chill is to do nothing and to rest with your friends. This is the picture we have of rest. But is this the picture the Bible speaks of? Sometimes we think of rest this way, don't we? It's a rather morbid thought, just inactivity. It's like death. I mean, how many times you walk through a graveyard and on the tombstone says, Rest in peace. <laughs> or someone said, when I die, finally, it's, they'll put on my tombstone, finally resting. Is rest just about death? Is rest just about inactivity, just chilling out, doing nothing? What does the Hebrew writer mean when he says rest? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that in this text he tells us. The Bible is speaking of rest in a way not of inactivity or death, but rather of life, the good life. What is the truly good life? Now, how do we know this? Look with me at verse 4 in this text because he gives us an anchoring point of what rest is. And notice in verse 4, he says, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. 
If we are to understand rest in the Scriptures and what the Hebrew writer intends in the text, we have to go back to Genesis. He quotes this verse in Genesis 2-2. You remember after Genesis 1, God works the six days, and the seventh day he rests. What is God doing resting? Ever thought about that? Is God tired? I hope not, or we're in trouble. See, rest is not just the opposite of work. This is important to grasp. Rest is not a contrasting idea with work, first and foremost. God is delighting in His creation. Rest is a comprehensive idea of the life God has for you and me to live, the life we long to live, the life we were designed to live. Think of it this way, would you? This idea of rest is not just, you may put jigsaw puzzles together. It's a rather torturous thing with there's thousands of pieces. But often we think of rest as a piece in the puzzle of the biblical text. Sort of one little piece in the story of the Bible. It sort of scoots in now and then, adds color and hue and texture to the story. But rather, rest is not to be seen as one small piece of the puzzle, but rather a wide-angle lens shot of the cover of the box. Rest is the life God designed you and me to live. It's a picture of God's delight in himself and creation. It is the picture of the life we long to live. It's a picture of integrity and purpose and meaning. It is a picture of a life not lived at breakneck speed, but of soul-refreshing depth. So when the writer speaks so much about rest and entering rest and experiencing rest, The writer of Hebrews is saying the life we were created to live in the Garden of Eden is the life that is available to us to live. A life of wholeness, a life of purpose, meaning, and intimacy. The life we were created to live. That's the picture. So the next question flows is, why don't we truly rest then? We all feel this gap between the life we long to live and the life we live, the life we were designed to live. We feel the restlessness of our spirit, don't we? The restlessness of our world. So why is rest so elusive to our grasp, this life we were created to live? Why? Well, the author helps us understand this by helping us look back to the past. Because to navigate the present, we must understand the past. Remember, if you were older, uh, Sam Cooke's great song. It was a hit song when I grew up. I remember my brother's stereo blasting this song. You know the words... It's called Wonderful World. Now, I'm not going to sing it to you, God forbid. But the words go like this. Don't know much about history. Don't know much about biology. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I took. But I do know that I love you. And I know that if you love me too, what a wonderful world this would be. I'm all for loving others and the wonderful world love makes. But knowing history and learning from it matter too. This is the point of the Hebrew writer, that those who forget the past are destined to repeat it. The writer of Hebrews, both in chapter 3 and chapter 4, are arranged to make the point that history matters. And he begins to weave together a story. He quotes Psalm 95, and he seeks to jog the collective memory of the first century believers who are reading this work, which was a sermon originally that has become a circulating letter. 
Now notice how he wants to jog the memory of us and the first century generation by looking back to the wilderness generation, the generation that left Egypt. We might call them the wilderness generation. If there's ever a chapter break that doesn't fit between three and four, it's here. And I want to go back to chapter three, verse 16, and read through four, chapter two. So follow along with me. This is the memory jog to look back. For those who were, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Now, if we have not read the Bible very much, or we don't understand the literary genre or structure of this text, it's rather confusing. The literary scaffolding the Hebrew writer gives us, and if you want to impress your friends at school or your colleagues at work, is typology. This text is arranged around typology. And uh, Pastor Bill has mentioned that a little bit. Let me highlight a little bit more. Because typology is a literary structure, an arrangement that foreshadows something in the future that occurred in one sense in an earlier period of history. And you'll notice how the writer goes back from the Exodus generation to Joshua to the first century generation to you and me. And he does it in a seamless fashion. And the question underlying this typology is, why didn't the wilderness generation find rest? Why didn't they get to the promised land? Why did they not experience the life God had for them? And notice the connecting thread through this whole text. What is the connecting thread? Why don't we enter this life God has for us? It is the word unbelief. The wilderness generation were unwilling to trust God. They were unwilling to trust him. They took things into their own hand, and they never experienced this rest. So here in the opening chapter of verse 4, the Hebrew writer using typology transitions, notice the text, from the past to the present to his first century readers, to us. He encourages them and us that the promise of finding true rest is still available to us. This Genesis 2 life is still available to you and me. The good news of a promised life and a promised land awaits us. And we must learn from the wilderness generation, and instead of demonstrating unbelief or disbelief or disobedience, we must trust the good news of the gospel. Notice the good news language here. And we must demonstrate our faith through obedience. That's where he goes. Do you see it? So in verses 3 through 7, if you have your Bible open, the Hebrew writer gives us a loving warning of the peril of unbelief. He's already done that in chapter 3, verse 12. He puts a phrase that is unique to the New Testament, unbelieving evil heart. You see that. Most of the time, we think of unbelief or disbelief. We don't think of that evil. We think about a murderer, a child molester, or someone like that. It's evil. And it is evil. But interesting, the Hebrew writer connects an unbelieving heart, unbelief or disbelief, with evil. That's powerful. But that's where he goes. Hard hearts, notice Psalm 95, hard hearts of disbelief will never find rest. That's his point. See, hard hearts may live fast, but they never live deep. 
So the writer of Hebrews raises the question so we understand clearly what is rest? What is this life we were created to live? The life we long to live? What is it? Secondly, he addresses why we don't find it. What keeps us from rest? And now he helps us understand how do we truly experience rest. Now notice again, this typology is in verse 8. The writer brilliantly connects Joshua with Jesus. In fact, their names in Hebrew are the same, Yeshua. And notice in the text, Joshua and his generation that followed Moses entered the promised land, but notice what the text says. They entered the land of rest, but they never experienced ultimate rest. Even Joshua's generation looked, notice what the text says, to another day later on, to a future day. Wow. A future day that would bring Sabbath rest. The kind of rest that Adam and Eve experienced before sin and death entered the world is the rest that will be now available to them and to us. Joshua of the Old Testament looks to another Joshua. Do you see it? Jesus himself in the New Testament, the one who will bring ultimate Sabbath rest that Adam and Eve longed for back in Genesis 3, that Moses longed for, that Joshua longed for. The person of rest has come, and we can find rest in him. Notice verses 9 through 11. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For notice, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive, or the word literally means in the Greek text, to be intentional, to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Do you see this as thoughtful listeners and thoughtful readers of the text that the Hebrew writer begins to point to true Sabbath rest? True Sabbath rest is not now looking back to creation in verse 4. Now, true Sabbath rest is looking to the cross of Jesus. Notice what the text says. True rest is entered when we rest from our works. The true and better Jesus makes it possible for you and me to experience true rest. True creation rest. It is a true rest, and hear this carefully, this is where the Hebrew writer is going, that does not depend on on religious works or self-effort, but rather on what Jesus, the person of rest, has done for us and you and me to make that rest possible. It is a rest given to us by grace through faith. And the implications for the first century reader and for you and me is this. We rest because we are not slaves anymore to sin. We rest because we're not trying to earn acceptance from God anymore. We rest because we can trust God who not only created us but redeemed us. So Jesus shed atoning blood on the cross. We we rest, we find rest in the good news of the gospel. Fourth century Augustine of Hippo who is better known as St. Augustine, understood this text well. And this is what he said. He said, Lord, you have made us for yourself. That's creation. And we are restless until we find rest in you. Rest, the Hebrew writer says, is found in a person of rest. The life you were created to live, the life I was created to live, the life I long to live, is the life Jesus makes possible for you and me to experience. This is where he goes. So this morning, a question I've asked myself in my study and on my knees and my time of prayer, looking at my own heart, is the question I want to ask you that I think the Hebrew writer asked. 
Where are you looking for rest? Are you chasing mirages of rest in the wilderness of a busy, overextended, self-absorbed life? Are you finding rest, this life you long to live, accumulating just more wealth or more financial security? Are you at school thinking somehow greater popularity with your friends or at work with your colleagues will bring rest for yourself? Are you squeezing out as much pleasure as you can in life, thinking somehow that will bring you rest? Are you looking to religiosity, earning it, being really religious, engaging in social causes, as good as that is? Are you looking to that to find rest for your souls? A few things are more perilous to our soul than religiosity without the gospel. Because you will notice the language of entering the rest. You see it over and over again in the text. And to strive to enter the rest. How, how does that work? Because we enter that rest only through grace. But let's remember that grace, while opposed to any meritorious earning on our part, Jesus paid it all. Right? Grace is opposed to our merit but it is not opposed to our effort. Grace-directed effort is how we more fully press into the life with Jesus we are invited to live. So let me challenge us with three diagnostic questions of application, okay? Still with me? How do we live a restful life in a restful world? Three questions I think are important for all of us wherever we are in our spiritual life this morning. First is this. Are you listening to God's voice this morning? The repeated refrain of Hebrews 3 and 4, you'll notice this, is plucked from the Old Testament, from Psalm 95. And it's about don't harden your heart. Hear God's voice. Hear God's voice. And notice in verses 12 and 13 in this chapter, we find that the primary way we hear God's voice is through his revealed word, the Holy Scriptures. And notice what 12 and 13 said. These holy scriptures, inspired by God, are able not only to be read, but to read us in the deepest thoughts and intentions of our heart. The Hebrew writer reminds us that God's scriptures speak God's voice to us wherever we are this morning. And the peril is if we are drifting from the faith, if we are letting go of the faith we once believed in Christ, if we are starting to drift morally, intellectually, theologically, we stop hearing God's voice. More static, more cluttered, more distance from Him. Drifting is perilous, but hardening of the heart is also perilous. That's the second metaphor He wants us to remember, right? When we harden our heart through disbelief or disobedience to His word, when we begin to compromise, when we begin to shut him off, when we are willfully disobedient to his commands, to the life he calls us to live in the scripture, it's increasingly hard to hear his voice. This is the peril for your heart and mine, friends. Pastors are no different. If you are living a frenetically paced life, 
If you are too busy, your life is too cluttered, it's too full of information. If it's too fast, you will not hear God's voice. God is there. He is not silent. But the question is, are you living too fast to hear him? Am I living too fast to hear him? Are you hearing God's voice this morning? Through his word, through the power of the spirit, speaking to you. Secondly, have you embraced the gospel? Here in Hebrews 4, verse 2, we must not miss this. We read, for good news, that's the word gospel. For good news came to us just as to them. Only when you embrace the gospel will you find true rest for your souls. Only. The good news, what is it? We know that from the text. It's not a mystery, although it's deep. The good news of the gospel at its very core is this, and hear it carefully. This is the good news that the Hebrew writer unpacks from chapter 1 all the way through. The good news of the gospel is this, that Jesus came to earth. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross, shedding his innocent blood as an atoning sacrifice for your sin and mine, satisfying the wrath of a holy, righteous God. He then rose from the dead, defeating death once and for all. Jesus ascended to heaven, and one day he'll return to earth. He will usher in the new heavens and new earth, that place of ultimate rest for you and me, the ultimate promised land. Jesus offers you and me, by grace through faith, of no merit of our own, but the merit of Christ, forgiveness from sin. And he gives us a new creation life when we in repentance and faith embrace him as our Lord and Savior. Please hear me. This text doesn't want us to drift. Doesn't want us to miss it. Because your eternal destiny, my eternal destiny, and the life we long to live rest on this. The true rest your heart longs for, that my heart longs for, is not something we can ever earn. It's a gift of grace given to us by Jesus in his finished work on the cross and his glorious resurrection. Have you embraced Christ? I'm not talking about being religious. If you embrace Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and if you have, have in humility and faith, and maybe this morning, this is a crucial moment for you. You've been religious all your life, or you're not sure. You've never understood why Jesus came for you and the life he has for you. May you trust him in simple faith and repentance. And if you've embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, God's word declares you are totally loved. You are totally accepted. You are secure in his love now and for all eternity. Not because of what you have done or will ever do, but because what Jesus has done for you. You don't have to be enslaved to sin anymore. You don't have to prove your good looks, your good worth through your work anymore or your good personality. You don't have to live a frenetic life of worry and anxiety anymore. You can learn from Jesus how to rest. You can learn from Jesus how to live deep and not just fast. So the third question is, are you learning from Jesus? See, the cross of Christ makes possible the yoke of Christ. Jesus, the person of rest, gives us the great invitation that we often miss in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28-30. It is the central text of the New Testament. It's the central text of Christ's community. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, we read Jesus' words. This is the Lord of the universe words. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Some of us realize that the center of this text is a metaphor of the yoke. And simply put on this is that Jesus was a carpenter the majority of his time on planet Earth. And a yoke was an agrarian instrument where oxen were trained to plow or to pull a wagon. And Jesus takes a comparison. He made yokes. Jesus takes the comparison of the first century world and he compares it to be learning from him. And just like one ox, a young ox learns from an older ox in a training yoke, Jesus paints this picture of learning from him how to experience rest in a life of apprenticeship. And what Jesus is saying is when we enter his yoke, we enter his pathway to rest. But to live the life God designed for you to live, that Jesus will teach you how. And you will increasingly experience the life you were created to live in Genesis 2.1 and fully live one day in the new heavens and new earth. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases Matthew 11 brilliantly. This is what he says. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay any heavy or ill-fitting thing on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Have you responded to Jesus' great invitation to be his disciple, his apprentice? True rest is experienced in apprenticeship with Jesus, to learn from Jesus what he taught and how he lived. Let me suggest for... Your consideration, if you're taking notes, I'd like to challenge you in closing with four keys to apprenticeship with Jesus. We are called to enter this rest, to strive to enter this rest. That means that grace, while opposed to any merit, is not opposed to effort. He invites us into rest. How do we rest? Four truths. First, we need to learn from Jesus that learning from Jesus is about submission and not merely information. Let me just say this. This is often missed. Apprenticeship with Jesus, the life you long to live, The life of increasing soul rest does not merely come from having more Bible information. Bible information is vital. Information that does not lead to personal obedience to Christ is more perilous than perhaps any threat to your spiritual formation and Christ-likeness. Learning from Jesus to become like Jesus comes from obeying what he says. Is Jesus Lord of your life? Are you all in with him? Are you yoked with Jesus this morning? Secondly, learning from Jesus is about training and not merely trying. Experiencing this life Jesus has made possible for you on the cross in his glorious resurrection is not just about you trying harder. It's about training better with Jesus. None of us would think about going out and running a marathon tomorrow if we hadn't been training a long time, right? Yet somehow we think we're going to enter the rest and live the life Jesus has for us by simply trying harder. That is a death knell to your soul. The Avis car rental model is deathly. We just try harder. It's not trying harder. It's training better with Jesus. Jesus teaches us this life in the yoke. But it is about his practices, his disciplines, that lead us to a place of deep soul rest. And that's the third question or third statement. Learning from Jesus is about practices, not only precepts. Let me just say there that as committed as we are to the word of God and to teach and to understand what Jesus says, we are also committed to follow how Jesus lives. 
Jesus teaches us this rhythm of grace, of engagement and withdrawal. Jesus worked hard, but he didn't live fast. He lived deep. And he teaches us how to embrace the rhythms of the spiritual disciplines, the practices that deepen our soul and give us rest in a restless world of fasting, prayer, solitude, and service, and there are many others. Fourth, learning from Jesus about saying no as well as saying yes. I'd love to spend more time here. My time is out. Let me just say a few things because I think this is missed. Apprenticeship with Jesus means not only saying yes to some things that maybe we have neglected, but also saying no no to things that are wreaking havoc on our world, our bodies, and our souls. Jim Collins, a leadership expert, says this well. He says, good is often the enemy of great. And that's true in your spiritual life. We not only need to have a to-do list, we need to have a stop-doing list. We not only need to concentrate on the life Jesus has for us, but to eliminate other things. Marginless living may mean for you one less activity for your kids, one less consumptive lifestyle. It may mean eliminating exhausting schedules. It might mean addressing burnout and fatigue. The greatest challenge to many of our spiritual lives is not just willful disobedience. It's the restlessness of the soul that comes from the frenetic pace we are keeping. So will you tether your heart to the gospel this morning? Will you take his yoke and learn from him? And will you find rest for your souls, the life you long to live in the depths of your being? The life God has designed for you, the life Christ came to die for you, the life Jesus leads you to, to live the life you long to live. Will you find rest for your soul? And will you join with other apprentices and followers of Jesus and the Christ community family in our Brookside campus? And in the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, will you strive to enter that rest? The true and better Jesus gives us true rest. He gives you true rest. And he shows us how to better find rest for our souls. Let's live. Let's live deeper. Let's just not keep running faster. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, rest for our souls is often so elusive. Holy Spirit, speak into our lives that we may embrace the good news of the gospel and to live this grace out. And let us strive to enter that rest to experience the life you created us to live. And Father, there are those here this morning who have never embraced Christ as their Lord and Savior. May in the quietness of this moment, may they trust you in the gospel. For those who have not entered your yoke, who become an apprentice of you, may this morning be a decisive morning in their life. Grant to us rest. In Jesus' name.